that passage open in front of you just now, please. Uh, And let's pray before we come to look at God's Word. Father God, we thank you for your Word. Uh, We thank you for life in all its fullness, which is presented to us there. And Lord, we pray that you would guide us now as we come to consider your work in Jacob's life at this point. Lord, teach us not only about Jacob, but teach us how we might follow Jesus better. Amen. I love the church of Jesus Christ. I think when you look through the world today, there's something very unique about the church. Maybe apart from our own natural families, it's one place where different generations spend time together and expect to encourage each other. And that's been a great thrill for us here at Kirkpatrick Memorial to see how over the last years, the, the generations, all of them, are being more and more represented here and are, are learning to encourage each other and, and play our part. In recent times, there's been a a real influx of young families into our church life. We have lots of people with us now who are living in in what I would call the busy years. At just the same time that these people are extremely busy in their workplaces, maybe being promoted, taking on new responsibility year after year after year, at just that time in their lives, it seems that quite often things take off at home And that family life begins to gather pace uh, and and family responsibilities at home uh, begin to to really accelerate. It's in these busy years that it seems to take every moment of every day and every ounce of energy that we have just to survive. Jacob's in the busy years. The passage we're looking at tonight, this first half which we've read just now and the the half that we'll look at a little bit later, deals with the twin aspects of family and career. Jacob is in the thick of it right here. We're actually looking at a period that covers about 20 years, particularly if we take in the period we looked at last week. As we look at this part of Jacob's life, we're looking for signs that God is at work somehow in all of this. And in particular, we're asking a question. Can Jacob live for God in the busy years? Is it possible to live well for God in this phase of our lives? Or is it inevitable that he'll become distracted and disillusioned? Well, the first part of our passage, the one we've just read, deals with the growth of Jacob's family from 29 verse 31 right down to the end where we finished, 30 verse 24, we're told about 12 children born to Jacob. Leah, she has six sons and one daughter. Rachel's maidservant, uh, Bilhah, has two sons. Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, has two sons. And finally, Rachel gives birth to a son, Joseph. You'll be glad to know that after the tedious Uh, reading of that passage. We're not going to go through that verse by verse this evening. But there are a few things that happen in there that are worth noting, and I'll just flag those up quickly. What's going on here behind all those nappies 
and the countless bottles of Calpol. What's, what's happening in, here in Jacob's life? Well, first there's Leah. We met Leah last week. Rachel's older sister, Laban's daughter, Jacob's unloved wife. It seems that even with the passage of time, Jacob does not learn to love Leah. Verse 31, we read, The Lord saw that Leah was not loved, and in his grace, God opens her womb. Leah knows that her husband doesn't love her. But reading these verses, I think she knows that God loves her. She has a a sense that God sees her plight and, and that God watches over her. You can see that in the name that she gives her four sons. She calls the first Reuben because the Lord has seen my misery. The next one, Simeon, because the Lord's heard that I'm not loved. He gave me this one too. The third she calls Levi and the fourth Judah saying this time I'll praise the Lord. Leah may not have her husband's love, but she does have God's love. Sometimes, like Leah, we find that we're not loved by the people we love. Perhaps we're rejected by someone dear to us who did love us once. Perhaps there's someone who above all others we wish would love us. But they only ignore us. Barely notice that we exist. In the midst of our heartache, there's this sense that we're unloved. But here I I think we're reminded in these verses that even at that time we are not unloved. God's love is strong. It's unending. It never fails. And it sustains us. God's love keeps us able to love God and to love the people around us. While Leah's unloved and having all these babies, Rachel, whom Jacob does love, can't have the babies she so craves. Just reading the passage here this evening, we get a a sense of her growing desperation. In the first couple of verses of chapter 30, the narrator focuses on her plight. She's jealous of Leah, we're told, understandably. She's angry with Jacob, and he in turn is angry at her for taking it out on him. The sense is that this family is just coming apart at the seams. The pressure is too much. They can't cope with what's going on in their home. Rachel's not the first in the family of faith who's had to deal with this heartache. Now for the third generation, uh, we've seen uh, this, this particular heartache. Sarah, if you remember, she had to wait way beyond the years of natural childbearing before she could have the miracle of Isaac's birth. Rebecca, she had to wait 20 years before the twins, Jacob and Esau, were born to her. It seems as though God, God wants to remind this family, 
He wants to keep it before them that everything that He will do in them and through them is as a gift of His grace. Nothing in this life can be taken for granted, not even life itself. Every good thing that we have is a gift of God. We can't force the issue. God's in control. And yet, as we look at these verses, we find that Rachel does the very thing that that we probably all would do. She does force the issue. She looks for ways of uh, of forcing uh, this thing on. In verse 3, Rachel gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob so that she'll sleep with him. She does exactly the same thing that Sarah had done. Sarah, if you remember, had given her maidservant Hagar to Abraham. Well, here Rachel does the same. She gives her servant to Jacob so that he'll sleep with her and allow her to have a family. Now, this kind of surrogacy was a common enough practice in that culture, so we don't judge Rachel for this practice. But the, probably the thing that, that we, we would uh, worry about here is that there's no mention of God in this. There's no sense that Rachel has turned to God seeking his guidance. There's no sense that a word has come from God encouraging her to go down this road. We have no reason to believe that she's trusting God in all of this. She still thinks that life is something that she can control. Later in the passage, we see another incident that confirms Rachel's lack of trust in God. Look at verses 14 to 17. Some of this stuff in this passage is quite weird. This is the bit about the mandrakes. In the Hebrew, mandrakes are called love fruits. So these fruits were used as an aphrodisiac in the ancient world. Rachel's found a love drug. It's the sort of thing that would come to you in an email advertised on the internet um, if, if you get those kind of emails. It seems that Rachel, because she's Jacob's favorite wife, she has a a strange role. She gets to decide whom Jacob sleeps with any given night. And and it's a questionable privilege, I, I would imagine. In order to get these mandrakes, she allows Leah to go and sleep with with Jacob on a given evening. Ironically, the result of it all is that Leah is the one who falls pregnant as a result of this episode and not Rachel who's relying on these mandrakes. Rachel's technique has failed. Whenever Rachel does finally fall pregnant, it's not as a result of her forcing the issue or as a result of her clever technique. We're told in verse 22 that God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her womb. Rachel has set aside technique. She has called out to God and we're assured that he heard her and we learn that he opened her womb. She calls her son Joseph and she prays that God may add another. There's something tragic, I think, about this childbearing competition. 
behind all those births, there are, there are people struggling, uh, women struggling for the love of their husband, struggling for acceptance in that particular community, outdoing each other, whether it's by maidservant or by mandrake. And yet, what comes out of all of this? It's out of these flawed motives, out of this, this family chaos, that the 12 leaders of God's people emerge, the 12 tribal leaders of Israel. This, friends, I, I think is the story of God's work in humanity. God shapes good out of lives that are embarrassingly unworthy. Lives like mine, and even like yours. We, we aren't good people. And, and yet the story of, of the gospel is that God chooses to work in us and through us. God's grace is always greater than our sins, and his purposes aren't thwarted even by, by our sinfulness. Now, I want to pause for a moment and and not rush into the the next passage. We're studying this part of God's Word for the same reason that we study every part of God's Word. We want to learn more about how to follow Jesus Christ. You see, we're like Jacob. We've met with God. We've responded to His call in our lives. In our case, we've responded to the call of Jesus Christ. Like Jacob, we're up and running in this life of faith. And we want to learn more. Jacob's met with God. We, we learned about that over the last couple of weeks. But now he's in the busy years. He's busy with family. We've seen that in these verses. Think of it. Jacob is responsible for two wives, for two other women uh, who, who are almost like wives, and for 13 children that we know of. These people all live together in one community, and Jacob is somehow at the hub of it. Imagine that, if you dare. That's where Jacob lives, and that's where he will live out this life with God that he's been called to. We come back to our question at the beginning. Can Jacob live for God in the busy years, in this madhouse And is it possible for us? Can we live for God in the busy family years? My impression from living through this myself and from talking to to some friends here in church and elsewhere is that we're struggling. It seems to take every moment of every day and every ounce of energy that we have just to survive just to keep the chin above water. Once we've fulfilled obligations at family and at work, there's little or no time left to develop our relationship with God, to use the kind of language that we, uh, we maybe take to our lips at this stage. We don't understand how God could possibly be at work in our hectic domestic arrangements. We're not convinced that he's in our, in our work, in our day job. In fact, the truth is we're not sure that God's at work in us at all.
Maybe you'll allow me to speak personally for a couple of minutes here. I want to think with you for a moment about the impact the busy years are having on my life and on particularly one area of my life, the quiet time, as we call it. I want to talk to you about how my quiet time is going just now. I'm a pretty disciplined person, so over the years in my walk with Jesus Christ, I found it easy for long stretches of that to, to meet with God in a, in a pretty consistent, not, not an every single day sort of a way, but in, in a very consistent uh, way. For years I've been doing that early in the morning when the house is quiet before others are up and before the phone starts to ring before the working day. Three and a half years ago, my life changed. Patrick was born. Twenty months ago, it changed again. Sophie was born. All of a sudden, my previous routines no longer worked. None of them. My day doesn't start in silence. Often, the first thing that I hear in the morning is Patrick shouting, Daddy! Or Sophie maybe crying because her her teeth are sore. The possibility of a regular early morning quiet time, the possibility of early morning quiet just no longer exists in our house. I work all day just like anyone else. I know people don't believe that, maybe I'm a minister and all, but I do. I'm out a lot of evenings. So there's no easy, straightforward way for me to fix this. This loss of, of the time that I used to set aside to be with God. I'm, I'm being honest with my situation, about my situation here with you, so that uh, it'll maybe allow you to do the same. Um, the longer this has been going on, the more this has become an issue for me. Without thinking about it very much in the early days when the kids came along, I just insisted that I should have my quiet time as usual. So whenever it became clear that the kids needed help early in the morning, I didn't really react to the situation. I just continued to head for the study whether the children were crying or not. It's okay. Claire can get them up, wash them, comb the tangles out of their hair, change them, get their breakfast ready, do everything else that needs to be done. You see, I'm having my quiet time. And I'm a minister after all, so it's doubly important. That approach was based on an assumption that shocked me when I finally articulated it. I was assuming that it's okay for me to step out of my obligations as a husband and as a father, because I'm entitled to some sort of spiritual experience to get my day up and running. I thought what I was doing was the right thing and the good thing. I thought this was the way to live through the busy years, head down, far ahead, and to hell with the consequences on the people around me. It wasn't long before I could sense Claire's frustration. I thank God for a wife who can communicate frustration clearly and well. Claire lets me know 
when I'm being a, a selfish prat. And I was. I realized that I was failing to be a good husband to Claire. Problem solved? No, not exactly. Once I started to relinquish my grasp on that early morning quiet time that I felt I was entitled to, from feeling selfish, I ended up feeling guilty. Maybe, maybe not feeling Claire so much anymore, but now worse, feeling God. Maybe being a better husband, but now being a terrible son of God, someone who doesn't begin the day with a long, peaceful, meandering time in God's presence. Welcome to the busy years. Now that I can't guarantee a decent amount of time with God early in the morning, I've had to make other arrangements, and I've tried to do that. I, I won't go into that just now. I still try and have a quiet time, but it's, it's different. It's shorter, and it, it works in a way that allows me to, to carry out the obligations that I have in my home without uh, oppressing my family. One, or, one day, two or three months ago, I had a bit of a breakthrough in all of this. Uh, I was out walking alone in Redburn Country Park near Hollywood, and I was just thinking and praying. And all of this stuff about my walk with God was weighing heavy on me. It was really, it was, this was what I was preoccupied with. This is what I was trying to understand and pray my way through. And at one point, I just felt this incredible burst of energy. And this prayer that I articulated was something like this. Stuff this, Father. I'm sick of feeling guilty. I've felt guilty now for months and for years. I can't believe this is your will for me. You have given me a wife. You have given me these two children. You have given me a, a job that I love, but that demands a lot of me. Whatever way it is you want me to follow Jesus, I don't believe you're calling me to escape those responsibilities you've given me. There must be some way that I can be faithful to you and be a good husband, a good dad, and a good minister. Lord, help me to find that way. Looking back on it, I don't think that was my own prayer. It felt to me like a prayer that God gave me. I don't usually start my prayers with stuff this, Lord, or stuff this, Father. You know that. I pray for you here regularly. But the frustration and the struggle, it just came to the surface in that moment. And you know, I felt a great sense of release at that moment. I felt like I was able to say these things to God, the one person before whom I would be afraid to articulate them, to say them and no sense of judgment, nothing, only understanding and grace and compassion. So rather than trying to escape the limitations of my domestic and working life, I'm trying to find God in them because I believe, I really do, I believe that God's with me every moment of every day. Now that's easy to say, 
But even as I was writing this sermon, it was hilarious, but I had a moment at home when I was sitting typing on the word processor, trying to get this ready for now. At one moment, I had Patrick in one ear sitting on the toilet shouting, Daddy, come and wipe my bottom. And at exactly the same moment, you had to be there to, to, to hear this. And in the other ear, Sophie was wailing outside the door of the study because she'd just fallen and split her lip and had blood pouring over her. I was trying to get a sermon ready for church. I was in the spiritual zone, and I had a dirty bum and a split lip all at the same time. Can we live for God in this? Is God in this? Of course he is. Of course he is. He'd better be. Because for some of us, it's all we've got. And it's all we're going to have for the stable future. Tonight, we're thinking about the busy years. That period in life where we experience increased responsibilities at home and at work, and, and it all just comes on us and, and threatens to overwhelm us. We've thought here for a moment uh, in some detail about Jacob's increased responsibilities with a growing family. We're going to spend much, much less time um, thinking about his increased responsibilities at work. We're, we're going to look here at a, a passage that we haven't read, so keep an eye out on, on the passage that begins there, at, um, verse 25 of chapter 30. Jacob's flocks increase, and that's really, well, goodness, that tells the story. Jacob wants to leave Haran. He's been there for 14 years. He's been serving his uncle Laban, and he's had enough. He wants to go home. Laban doesn't want them to go, and if you were here last week, you'll know that's not surprising. Laban is milking Jacob, um, having Jacob around is very, very good for Laban. It's a, it's a good setup for him. Laban says to Jacob, name your wages, because he doesn't want to lose them. Name your wages, he says in verse 28, and I'll pay them. Now, Jacob doesn't want a salary, no matter how generous the offer might be. He wants a chance to build up a herd of his own, so he presents Laban with a contract. He says, give me all the speckled and spotted animals in your herds, you can read the details of that strange arrangement, verses 31 to 33. Laban agrees, signs on the dotted line. He takes all the speckled and spotted animals, gets his sons to look after them, and he sends them three days' journey away. That way, Jacob, who's agreed to keep looking on to look after Laban's flocks, can't do anything to gain an advantage in this situation. So that's the contract. It's agreed and it's put into practice. In verses 37 to 42, we read of the ensuing contest. It's, it's quite funny, really, but if you've been with us here the last couple of weeks, you'll know both of these guys are crooks. Laban, Jacob, they're both crooks. So it's, it's two crooks going head to head, trying to see who'll get the better of the other. Jacob uses some interesting techniques to rear a growing population of speckled animals uh, that would belong to him. 
it's hard to understand what's going on here. If, if you read that and can get exactly what's going on here, come and explain it to me because I've read it a number of times. I've read different commentaries and it's kind of hard to know exactly what's going on. In verses 42 and 43, though, we see the results. The weak cannibals went to Laban, the strong ones to Jacob. So in this way, Jacob grows exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and men servants and maid servants and camels and donkeys. In today's terms, I think what we'd say here is that Jacob's career has taken off and that his net worth has rocketed. It's the kind of thing that sometimes happens to people who are in those busy career years. We began this evening by asking a question, can Jacob live faithfully for God in the busy years, or will he become distracted and disillusioned? Well, actually, at first glance in this chapter, it's really hard to tell, because there isn't an awful lot of mention of God in here. How can we tell how well Jacob's doing with God? How are we going to assess Jacob's busy years? Well, we need to reach a wee bit beyond the limits of our passage. And then a picture begins to unfold. We get some clues as to what's been going on in Jacob's life in these 20 years. Look at chapter 31, verse 5. At this point, Jacob's speaking to his two wives, Rachel and Leah. He's trying to convince them that it's time to leave Haran. Look, look carefully at how he speaks. I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that your father's cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. In verse 9, Jacob says, God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. Do you see what Jacob's saying here? He recognizes that it's God and only God who's given him this wealth. He knows that God's been with him these 20 years. He knows that God's protected him from the exploitation of Laban. He knows that every animal in that herd, as he looks out on it, is a gift of God's providence. Jacob's not perfect by a long shot. He's not perfect still. He's still prone here to the the scheming and the manipulation that, that... is so much at the heart of his character. We see that in this incident, I think, with the animals. But he's beginning to see God's goodness, and he's beginning to name it. I think that's a huge indicator that Jacob is growing in his life with God. So often, when people find a measure of success, and when they become wealthy, they begin to regard themselves as self-made men and women. It's down to hard work, they'll tell you, or or some good decisions along the way. Jacob's not presumptuous in that way. He gives credit to God. Maybe one of the tests of how we're doing and how we've done when we emerge from these busy years will be this one. What do we say about any blessing 
that we've experienced in our lives, will we say, that's, that's me? I did that? That's the results of my hard work? Or, like Jacob, will we say, God did that? And give him the honor and the glory? Flick forward to chapter 33. We're going to get to this incident in a few weeks' time. It's a, it's a really dramatic moment, actually, because Jacob is coming back to Esau. Twenty years after fleeing his family home because his brother was going to murder him, he's coming back to meet his brother. Look at verse 5, though. Esau looked up and he saw the women and the children. Who are these with you, he asked. And Jacob answered, They're the children God has graciously given your servant. Jacob knows that his family is a gift from God. Like his wealth, these, these children that he has, he doesn't take them for granted. They're a gift of a gracious God. Friends, I think taken together, his gratitude for, for his family, his gratitude for the wealth that God's given him, those are strong indicators that in those 20 years where we don't hear an awful lot about his walk with God, I think those are strong indicators that God has been at work in Jacob's life and that Jacob has been open to that. During these years, his walk with God's been really low-key. He doesn't seem to have been on the exec of the local CU, but he's grown He doesn't seem to have been able to go on short-term missions. You can't do that when you have 12 kids and hundreds of flocks. But he's matured in his knowledge of God. He might not even have been able to go on long mountaintop retreats for spiritual moments. But somehow, he's discovered that God is with him and working in him anyway. Are you living in the busy years? Do you struggle with the twin demands of work and of family? Worse still, are you beginning to believe that God has given up on you, that he's, that he's passed you by, that he's gone looking for someone who has a bit more time on their hands for spiritual stuff? Is that how life feels to you right now? Don't believe it. God is with you. God is with you in your home and in your workplace. He's right there among the smelly nappies and the grumpy clients, the grumpy students, and the grumpy patients. Friends, God is with us for life for the whole of life and for the whole of your life. Let's pray.